everyone, I'm Nikki Sharma, an anaesthetic reg, dog lover, and a recovering workaholic. And I'm Nadia Taylor, an anaesthetic SHO, mum to two little ones, and self-proclaimed foodie. And you're listening to Coffee and a Gas, a podcast about all things well-being for anaesthetists of all ages and stages. Looking after ourselves is more important now than ever. We're here to explore our bad habits, fears and concerns, as well as learning the strategies to combat them and feel well. We're chatting about things like stress management, diet and sleep, and talking to some pretty great people along the way. So whether you're listening to us with a cup of tea in hand after a tough day at work, or nursing your morning coffee waiting for the bus, we hope you enjoy this journey of feeling well together. Today, we welcome Professor Dame Claire Gerarda. Dame Claire is a GP with an extensive career working in mental health and addiction. After her psychiatry training, she took up general practice whilst maintaining her interest and expertise in addiction. Dame Claire has held an impressive number of national roles, including Chair of the Royal College of GPs and soon to be President of the RCGP, Senior Policy Advisor for Drugs and Alcohol at the Department of Health, Director of the RCGP Substance Misuse Unit and Chair of Doctors in Distress. In 2020, she was awarded a DBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours for her services to general practice. She is also the Medical Director of the Practitioner Health Programme, which we hope to hear more about today. Welcome, Dame Claire, and thank you so much for joining us to talk about burnout in healthcare workers. So if we can just start by perhaps you can... Talk to us a bit about what burnout is and what are some common misconceptions or misunderstandings about that? Yeah, thank you. Burnout is such a commonly used term and it sort of almost describes itself, doesn't it? It's onomatopoeic. It's a a sense of deflation, a sense of loss of interest, loss of compassion People describe what's called depersonalization. In other words, the the patient, if we're talking about doctors, isn't a patient. They become an object and we lose compassion. Burnout is an occupational disorder. You only get burnt out or the diagnosis of burnout is is related to your working environment. So it's an occupational disorder. And I would say amongst doctors, but amongst other caring staff, but let's stick to doctors, it's almost ubiquitous. I don't think you can survive a career being close to patients where you're having to give more of yourself than you receive back without getting burnt out at some point in your career. Now, there is an enormous overlap between burnout and depression. And sometimes I think burnout is doctor's way of defending themselves against having depression. It seems to be much more acceptable to say I'm burnt out rather than to say I think I'm depressed. So burnout is ubiquitous. Burnout is a sense of a sense of losing interest in one's work, losing compassion. But I would then also say, as I've said, burnout and depression sometimes overlap. And in fact, some of the measures for burnout are actually measures for depression, such as feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, uh, feelings that life has no interest. So I think sometimes we 
risk calling somebody burnt out when in fact they're depressed. Thank you. And um, I know you've recently written an article in the BMJ talking to us about burnout. And I was wondering for any of our listeners who haven't had a chance to read that yet, you do talk a bit about your own personal experience of burnout. And I was wondering if you could share that with us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I didn't call it burnout. I mean, burnout, although it's been around as a term since the 1970s, it wasn't really in the vernacular till I'd say the last five years. So I didn't know I was burnt out. All I knew was that I resented my patients. I resented the time they were having of me. I resented the fact that I was spending more time with them and sorting their problems out than I was with my own family. And I began to lose curiosity about them. I, I'm really curious about patients. I think it's quintessentially a part of medicine to be interested in patient stories. And I lost interest. I just couldn't be bothered to listen to them. And though I went through the mechanics of caring, actually the, the, the essence of caring had gone. And my children were at the time sort of on the cusp of puberty. They were about eight and 11. And I just thought I wanted to spend some time with them. I felt really quite demoralized that their childhood was rapidly disappearing. And I, in retrospect, realized I was burnt out. Maybe I was even depressed, but I don't know. All I know is that I asked the practice if I could take some time off. Uh, I took a sabbatical. I wrote a book, actually, but I spent five months uh, uh, really away from patient care, completely away. And I was surprised how little I missed the patients. I thought I would miss them. And when I went back, I changed how I worked. I changed the hours I worked. I put more free time into the week, free time to do other things. And in retrospect, I think I classically burnt out. Uh, and for me, the symptom, even in retrospect, was the loss of curiosity in my patients. I hope you don't mind me asking, do you think there was a catalyst or a particular event that made you think, this is enough, I need to take a step away? I think there always is a catalyst. Uh, so when we take the stories from doctors, okay, so I look after mentally ill doctors, we always look at the uh, predisposing factors, the precipitating factors, perpetuating factors, and then protective factors. So invariably there is a precipitant and the precipitant might be a complaint. I don't, I can't remember what my precipitant was. I think my precipitant, to be honest, was being asked to do an extra home visit. So something very trivial. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a catastrophic precipitant. It doesn't have to be the death of a spouse or moving house. So that is a major precipitant for, for mental illness and, and, and for, for, I would say, for precipitant, it tips want somebody over. But for me, it was probably, and I think I write in the book, it was probably an extra home visit, but there is always something hovering there's always predisposing factors if you're working in a chronic stress environment where you don't have the resources either physical resources i.e the equipment the time the space or emotional resources to deal with that chronic stress then you, burnout or depression or anxiety will almost inevitably follow and even 15 years ago general practice was a time of chronic stress without the resources so it was probably just a a slow burn iterative process as it usually is for doctors and for doctors sadly in my service the tip over is sometimes a drink drive offense so that they usually doctors don't usually identify their own 
mental illness. We've had psychiatrists, for example, who have filled in their own PHQ-9, GAD-7, those are questionnaires for depression and anxiety, whilst they're seeing their patients, because their patients are feeling, and realising that they are more depressed than their patients. So I don't think doctors are very good at recognising their own illnesses, to be honest. In fact, I think they're exquisitely bad at it. So you said that you feel that perhaps burnout is a more acceptable term than depression for doctors to take on for themselves. But do you think that there is still a stigma within the healthcare profession, especially with doctors that are admitting they themselves need help? And is that something you've found with the doctors that you've come across professionally? Oh, oh gosh, yes. And uh, I, my book, Do- Beneath the White Coat, uh, Doctors, Their Minds and Mental Illness, describes all this. The stigma is internalised. So it's even... Uh, it's even worse, if you like, than the general population. We doctors feel failures if we become unwell. And it's part of the archetype of a doctor, physician, heal thyself. And as that archetype, it sort of stood the test of time in that we clearly don't want doctors going off sick every time they have a sniffle or whatever. But I think COVID has shown the world that doctors are just human and actually, maybe this stoicism that we had in the past hasn't self-served us well and maybe hasn't served our patients well. So there is a stigma. It's, it's personalised, it's professionalised, and it's, uh, it's part of the wider community. And I often talk about this idea, this uh, study. It's a lovely study where they had uh, sham actors, doctors, and they had them showing slightly different affect. In other words, some of them might look slightly sad, some of them more animated. And patients, who were real patients, uh, were reported to trust the doctors less who they perceived as not having good well-being. They trusted them less, they trusted their advice less, uh, and they were less likely to follow what the doctor said. And, and actually, patients also mistrust doctors who are obese more than they trust doctors who are of normal weight. So there is something ingrained in society that prohibits us expressing our our true emotion. Now, that is protective because I think patients need to think of their doctor as being robust and mentally well. You know, I've recently seen a doctor for myself. I wouldn't have wanted that doctor to suddenly burst into tears and tell me how miserable he felt. It, It just doesn't work. But I think outside the doctor-patient relationship, I think doctors maybe need to take stock of their own physical and mental health and think, do I need help? Um, that's, it's really interesting. It, it, it makes me so pleased that we're doing this podcast because if our anaesthetists listening can improve their well-being, then hopefully they will present that, that uh, onto their patients and perhaps trust, be trusted more. And one word that often comes up when we're talking about burnout, stress, etc., is resilience and the idea of being resilient. I personally quite dislike that word because I feel that it gives the indication of if you are not resilient, you are therefore weak and that is why you need help. I wonder what you thought about the term resilience and how perhaps we can change the perception of that. Yeah. And the worry is, of course, if we take the word resilience, there'll only be another word that comes because we had self-efficacy in my day, which I think meant the same thing. 
there is doctors are some of the most resilient human beings in the workforce. Uh, we can work long hours. We can move from uh, a, a trivial event, trivial, you know, doctor GP signing a, a sick note to a catastrophic event, having to uh, a paediatrician having to, to, to do a resuscitation of a child in, in A&E back to a trivial event. And we do that. We have we can go long time to that eating, drinking. We even have resilient bladders. But every single, every single object, man-made or, or or live, has a point of no return, has an elastic limit. And we see that with the greatest oak tree, put a hurricane and it will fall over. So the term resilience, the definition is the ability to absorb pressure and bounce back. Doctors can absorb unbelievable pressure and bounce back. The Sadly, it's now also had an added for doctors. I think Health Education England have added a little caveat, which I don't like, which is and to learn from the event. Well, an oak tree doesn't learn if it's in, you know, and I think it's unfair to say we should learn from a from a, a catastrophic event. Or, or So resilience has been abused as a term. It, it does have a space. It does have a place. But it's been abused and it's been abused because it tends to then blame the individual. If only you were resilient enough, you wouldn't have cried on that world drowned. If only you were resilient enough, you'd have come for work. So resilience has been used as a, almost a, a derogatory term for doctors. that Somehow we're not resilient enough. But I'd also like to add you could be too resilient. If you think about resilience training in the army, they bombard army recruits with bombs and explosions and guns. And then those that survive that stay in the army. OK, paraphrasing, but you'll understand. Now, just imagine if the same thing was done for doctors, that actually if you were able to be so hard and so defended, these are the doctors we want working. Now, I would actually say they're not the doctors we want working. So the resilience is important because I think there is something about an internalized resilience that we can we can work with by doing certain things. But I think that the way it's being abused at the moment and what we must never get is mandatory resilience training, because that actually is almost mandatory mental health intervention. Because if you think about any of these interventions, such as compulsory mindfulness, uh, compulsory reflective practice. These were essentially mental health interventions. So we would then yet again become the only profession that has a mandatory mental health uh, intervention without using the Mental Health Act. So there are really, really, really dangerous uh, precedents if we are forced to do resilience training. And before I finish, there is also a lovely study done at, in St. Louis Hospital in America, which showed that mandatory resilience training makes doctors worse. It's all right if you do it voluntarily, if you really want to do mindfulness, you really like yoga, then actually there probably is a benefit. But forcing people to do something which they don't want to do in the essence of trying to make them harder makes things worse. I think that's really fascinating, uh, Dame Claire, because there's a sort of irony that if people are already at their max of what they're able to cope with and then you're adding mandatory training expectations onto that that in itself could be the precipitating factor that makes them you know decompensate absolutely and uh, 
please don't mention the word mandatory training. I've just been doing my online mandatory training. So <laughs> tip, me, tip me into into severe psychosis. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it's what we have to do is we have to we have to provide us all with the right environment where we can be vulnerable within a safe space. In other words, when I was a junior doctor and I was exhausted and I broke down on a ward round, I wasn't sent on sick leave or resilience training. I was sent to bed for two hours and somebody took my bleep. And the reason that was able to happen was that I worked in a team. We were a close-knit team. They supported me. The, the seniors supported the juniors. There was a place for me to lie down and the rules didn't just weren't there to make it that that impossible so that's so it's not like you're not going to find it tough I mean I'm not an anaesthetist but my god I imagine if you can't put an airway in and the patient's decompensating on the table or you can't get a line in my god you know how you must feel at that moment and that's nothing you know and, and your heart will be racing and you'll be probably slightly hyperventilating it's not about then sending you off from mindfulness. It's about understanding and somebody either being there to help you if you need it or afterwards saying, God, you know, Parnika, wasn't that a terrible airway that you just had to do? So that's what we have to be doing. Now, clearly, if you then developed a sort of anticipatory anxiety about putting airways in because of a bad experience, then you may need help. But that's still not called resilience training. It's called let's help you stop having anticipatory anxiety about something that you had a bad experience of. When you think about the individual, so perhaps someone who's listening to this podcast, who's maybe, you know, has been through the front line of COVID, has, we, we, we already had quite a lot of stress, stresses in our workplace before COVID, and then obviously the pandemic. If you're an individual and you're thinking, I'm really exhausted, I'm struggling, I might be burnt out. What kind of things can that person do to start sort of helping themselves and, and getting the support from their workplace? If you can, the best thing to do is to talk to your immediate boss. It, it, all the evidence from the army and from, from the, the frontline services, such as the ambulance and fire brigade, is if you can talk to the person who's immediately responsible for you, then that is probably the best place to start because it may be. And it's cliche, but it's true. A problem shared is a problem halved. It may be that actually you're physically exhausted and anaesthetists work so hard during the pandemic and you just might need a couple of days off to, to recuperate. Or it may be, as I've just described, you've become so tuned and so anxious about what you're doing, you're actually developing an anxiety disorder that may need treatment. And if you can trust your immediate boss just to have a, a gentle conversation, then I think that's the best way to start. The sad thing now, maybe not for nieces, but for, for most of people now working in hospital practice, they don't know who their immediate boss is. So what happens is they don't know where to escalate. And it's not like you can take it to the medical director of the hospital, that's far too far away, or the the, the, the clinical director that's too far or hr or oh so what it, it's very difficult if you really are feeling so when i was burnt out i spoke to my practice manager you know i didn't know it was burnout i just needed some time away for yourself but anaesthetists are a special breed 
and if I can be so bold, do you actually have low levels of mental illness compared to the medical profession? The sad thing is you, because of your, your uh, proximity to drugs, you have high level of drug use. And I've had doctors, anaesthetists, who, and this is why we must never blame a doctor for not knowing, because they don't know in that moment, who have taken midazolam to be used as a hypnotic you know, it's not a hypnotic, it's not a very good hypnotic, even I know that, and I'm not a anaesthetist, or fentanyl as a hypnotic. So because drugs are so close to you, it's much easier for you, if you are very stressed or anxious, to take what's closest to you. So if there is anybody, any anaesthetist listening to this, who is currently taking any drug that hasn't been prescribed to them, please contact our service. We can help you and we can help you sort out whatever mess you're in. Uh, that doesn't guarantee that the authorities, i.e. the General Medical Council, won't be involved, but it certainly will guarantee that you won't get into more mess than you're probably in now. And we will seriously help. We have a, a memorandum of understanding with the General Medical Council, which means if things are safe and the anaesthetist is, is in treatment, then we have a bigger wriggle room uh, without disclosing. But Otherwise, what happens is you get caught, the police get involved, and it's just five years of grim, grimness. I think that leads really nicely on to the practitioner health programme. So could you tell us a little bit about it? You know, how does it work? What's the journey of someone who might want to refer themselves? Yeah, thank you. It's been around for 14 years. It was set up following the death through suicide of a young psychiatrist, Daksha Ensign, who, before she killed herself, also killed her a newborn baby. And it recognised the, the, the fact that doctors find it so difficult to seek help. And it was also in the era, you're far too young to remember this, but in the era of Shipman, when you know, we were becoming much more punitive to doctors post-Shipman, but at the same time wanted to make sure there was somewhere you could go if you needed help so it's self-referral you cannot be forced to see us it's not part of a disciplinary process go on our website www.php.nhs.uk and find out how to access us there's a simple form which asks about some what, what the problem is if you have got serious issues of complaint uh drug misuse you will be fast-tracked through and you it's right across england in fact it's also in scotland now and we have been seeing people virtually, of course, over the last 18 months, but we will see people in the flesh or virtually, depending on their wish. And we do not disclose anything about you to anybody unless we're required to by law. So they're usually child protection issues or where we seriously concerned about your health or the health of your patients. And that has happened six to eight times in the last 14 years. So we contain the problem. We also have access to inpatient care for drug and alcohol misuse. So go onto our website. It's completely confidential, those tiny caveats. And what we will provide you is love, care and attention, something that very few of you would have had access to in your entire careers. You will probably have had snippets of conversation, consultations with colleagues. Oh, by the way, I've got a bad knee. What do you think? As I've done to my detriment. And we will allow you to sit down and tell your story. I think that's such a lovely description. We will provide you with love, care and attention, which is so different to what people normally think about if they're pursuing therapy. You know, think, think of someone who's 
quite clinical, a bit sterile, is going to make you lie on a sofa and, you know, ask you back. <laughs> we won't, we won't make you lie on your sofa. Uh, <laughs> we won't make you lie down. I, to be honest, if we did make you lie down on the sofa, it would be amazing. But no, you will sit in a chair or we did Zoom. But, you know, as an aesthetist, you have to do a lot for patients. I mean, I the stress and aesthetists are under, that those intense periods during an operation where things can go rapidly wrong, juxtaposed with the intense boredom of a routine list, I think makes you particularly vulnerable, uh, even though you don't attend our services. So I think there's also something protective about anaesthetics. And I think the protective factors for anaesthetics are you do tend to work in better teams. So you tend, even if that team is only, I say only, not to be drug free, but is a surgeon or a scrub nurse, but there tends to be a team. You do tend to have very good training in terms of you have a trainer, usually a one-to-one, but certainly one to three, you know, it's not big numbers. And you almost certainly can't do two lists at the same time. So you tend to have your work slightly better controlled than others. So though you are vulnerable because of the way you work, you also have some protective factors uh, in terms of how your, your, your work is structured. Those protective factors that I personally found is that I, I'm fairly new to anaesthetics and have done other, um, other career paths before. And I've just found that anaesthetists as a general body are very caring and very kind and approachable, which makes, um, you know, talking about my own personal experiences, I've been through a bit of a difficult time far easier and I've been protected far better by my supervisors and by my colleagues than perhaps I have done in in other careers in medicine. And I think that's right and I was trying to think about why that might be and whether it's because you do do such a high risk job you know nobody wants to be anaesthetized by a doctor who's drunk or under the influence of drugs and equally I don't think we probably want to be anaesthetized by someone who is in the depths of depression though you know, there's no evidence you can't do the job. But I suppose, but then why isn't it the same for surgery? You know, I would not want to be anaesthetised by a surgeon who's drunk. Yet surgeons on the whole don't look after their own kind. There isn't the sense of camaraderie. There isn't. So if you take the two ends of the body, you know, you're at the head end and the surgeon's at the other end, you are better protected. Your, your, your specialty does look after you. Your, your colleges, I know you've got two colleges, the Association of, of Anaesthetists and the Royal College of, of Anaesthetists. You, your colleges are doing staggering work to help you, staggering work. And I've met three of your presidents now over the last nine years, and each one of them cares about you. And yet you think anaesthetists, if I ask the general public anaesthetists, I think, oh, can't think why, you know, anaesthetists are so caring of each other. It'd almost be the opposite. Why are psychiatrists not? But I often wonder why surgeons are so less so. I'm not saying the Royal College of Surgeons isn't doing work. They are, but less so. You don't see surgeons tapping each other on the shoulder and saying, how are you? Uh, you don't see, and paediatricians, you know, there are paediatricians in their late 50s, early 60s, still doing full-time on-call at night. Why are their colleagues not tapping them on the shoulder and saying, Listen, it's about time you stop doing that neonatal nighttime shift. But your specialty, 
you do get tapped on the shoulder. You do get people saying, you've just, you know, you've just had a baby. I know you've come back, but should we not put you on these, on these shifts for the next three months? So I think it's something you can explore why your specialty is so kind to each other on the whole, because clearly that's not always. I think now that you've said it, it does make me reflect on the culture within anaesthesia, that we do actually look after each other. And maybe it's partly sort of not human factors, but the awareness that we learn during our training of the fact that, oh, that person's stressed, maybe maybe just let them go and sit this one out or, you know, be aware of that. Um, so I think that is really interesting. You are a larger specialty, of course. So there's a lot of you uh, and there's a lot of you trainees compared to, to others. But I think it is a culture. I think it's a culture that's probably built on the fact that disasters can happen so rapidly. And you've learned over the, probably over the millennia that the only way of stopping disasters is not just by improving the equipment, by by addressing these human factors. It's interesting you picked up on surgeons. So I used to be a surgical trainee. So I, I have personally experienced the difference between the cultures of surgeons and the cultures of anaesthetists. And you were asking the question, why? And personally, I felt that when I was a surgeon, I had to, there was a huge amount of competition to get the procedure. So I had to almost elbow my way to gain the experience that I thought I required to, to progress. Whereas in anaesthetics, there has not been a single day where I felt a colleague um, wanted to take my experience or my exposure to a situation for their own gain. Everybody shares their exam books, their exam experience and wants to help you through exams. Everybody, if there's an intubation to be happened, you'll have trainees saying, oh, you do it. You, It's a completely <laughs> different, it's a completely different culture. But Dame Claire, did you want to talk to us a bit more about your book? Could I? Because all proceeds go to my charity, Doctors in Distress. And the charity is there particularly to stop suicide amongst health professionals, amongst doctors, by providing spaces, reflective spaces for us to come together to talk about the emotional impact of our work. So Beneath the White Coat, it is actually a good book, I, even if I say so myself. It's not an academic book, though it's reference. It's more of a, a story about doctors and mental illness. It's got three chapters about what to do when things go wrong, which we're never taught about, and I urge you to read them before anything goes wrong, and a particular section on anaesthetists. It's Routledge. You can go onto the Routledge website or you can go onto Amazon, but if you want to go to Routledge, you'll see that there is a, a discount. And it wouldn't it be good if you all bought a copy to help my charity? Because I said all donations go to the charity. And wouldn't it be good if you bought it for Christmas presents? You bought two copies. Not expensive. I think it's retailing certainly under £20, if not less than that. Perhaps we can all donate a copy to our respective departments as well. Wouldn't that be lovely? Oh, if, if you do Very that, good I'll... idea, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, what we can try and do is upload a link to our podcast episode where people can click on and it's taken directly to the book. So we will try our best to do that. Dame Claire... It's been um, fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, I have certainly learned a lot. Don't know about you, Nikki, but um, I'm I'm going out and buying that book right now. Thank you. Yeah, I think you've really you've really made us think about burnout in a different way, and some of the steps that we can take, even if that is actually to step away and have a break from work, like you did. So, 
Thank you so much and looking forward to reading the book. Well, Nikki and Nadia, you too. Thank you so much and good luck in your career. We didn't even touch on women in medicine. Maybe you can do that next time and your particular your particular problems. But listen, lots of love and thank you all anaesthetists for your fabulous work during COVID. And I just think you work way beyond the call of duty. And thank you so much, all of you. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Coffee and a Gas. We would love to hear what you think, so please leave us a comment on the Association of Anaesthetists website. And if you found this podcast useful and enjoyable, make sure to share it with your friends and colleagues. See you next time.